Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, joystick wagglers. We're about to reach the end of Series 1 of Games Master, and we're going to do a special Series 1 wrap-up episode talking about our favourite celebs, challenges, reviews, consultation zones, moments, and many more. But we can't do it without you. So email in your favourite and least favourite moments from Series 1 of Games Master to feedback at underconsultation.com or tweet us at underconsolepod. You can send us an MP3 of your thoughts or you can call 020-329026 and leave a voicemail with your feedback. We'll be playing your thoughts on the show, so get in touch and you, that's right, you could be featured on our Series 1 wrap-up episode of Under Consultation. Or if you don't want your voice heard, put it down in words on an email or a tweet and we'll read those out too. The only thing we ask is to tell us what your favourite bit of music from this era of gaming is. Right, on with the show. Welcome to our kingdom. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, waggling my joystick and dropping bombs to get past troublesome beasties. And I am the other voice in your ear. I am Ash Versus, and I am under your granny's favourite chair. Aren't we all? (laughs) It's crowded. (laughs) This episode aired on the 25th of February 1992, and our number one film at the box office is Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. The Klingon Empire has 50 years of life left to it. To offer Klingons a safe haven within Federation space is suicide. They're animals. Jim, they are dying. You, Captain Kirk, are to be our first olive branch. Me? The galaxy stands at a crossroads. This is the Starship Enterprise. We've been ordered to escort you to your meeting on Earth. Guess who's coming to dinner? I have so wanted to meet you, Captain. One warrior to another? Right. On the verge of peace. The undiscovered country. Thank fuck. 
Sorry, because we've had some difficult films to cover thus far and some films that it's really difficult to say nice things about. Yeah. Like, we started strong with Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Then we had Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. And then it was JFK. Back <laughs> and to the left. Yeah. yeah. And now we're on to a film that is not only fun, is not only arguably good, but that actually has interesting things to be said about it because it's a Star Trek film and therefore you know the production history is going to be complicated <laughs> yeah. and involve egos and fighting. There's, have you read um, David Hughes's books, Tales from Development Hell? Yes. The Star Trek chapter in that is fascinating because it's usually just William Shatner was being a knob and making it difficult. Read the book, loved the book. Another thing that I devoured uh, over the summer of 2019 was the audiobooks oh, of the 50-year mission. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, it's by Mark Altman. Yeah, and I tell you what, if you want to know everything there is to know about Star Trek up until kind of the J.J. Abrams movies, and you've got the time and an Audible subscription, you can buy them in paper, but I would recommend for Sanity to go with the Audible versions. The 50-year mission, volumes one and two, are just amazing they're all oral history interviews snippet quotes and it tells a very complete pretty much warts and all story of star trek including the shatner egos including roddenberry being very weird <laughs> so yeah mark Orman, he also does uh, inglorious trek spurts it's a fantastic podcast if you're if you're a trek head not only Inglorious Trexpers, but also Greatest Movies Never Made, the 430 movie, and uh, all of it. Uh, it's like a whole network of programs. Um, Electric Surge, which is owned by Dean Devlin. Ah, Dean Devlin. Yeah, they got a they got a really nice studio because they live stream, <laughs> and I'm like, there's that Independence Day money. <laughs> Fun fact about uh, Mark Altman, he was a producer on the Dead or Alive movie. Not everyone's a winner. <laughs> I was going to say, worse than that, he also wrote the screenplays for House of the Dead and House of the Dead 2, the UA Bowl ones. They're not the worst video game movies ever made, but that's not a high bar. <laughs> the first one has, like, intersperses clips from the actual game itself into it. A bold move. A bold move. I believe because I interviewed Mark for uh, the book for Lights, Camera, Game Over, and he said that they did House you of the Dead... you got a book! <laughs> <laughs> Cheap plug. <laughs> <laughs> but he said that they did House of the Dead 2 almost as an apology to fans of the video game because House of the Dead was so bad. The second movie, it was a rare occasion where the sequel was better, but UA Bowl and video game movies... It says a lot when House of the Dead wasn't the worst video game movie he made. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'll go to bat for DOA, though. That is silly nonsense fun. It's silly nonsense, but it's one of a number of movies that you kind of often forget exist. <laughs> like, there's a Tekken movie. There's two Tekken movies out there. Oh, yeah. This, well, the second one wasn't meant to be a Tekken movie. It was actually a completely different movie that they then slapped the Tekken name onto. Oh, they diehearted it. Yeah, they completely <laughs> died with Avengers. Yeah. And Die Hard 2. Die and Hard, Die Hard 2. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 totally. And... And in fact, all the diehards since the original. I'm yeah. not sure any of them have been an actual diehard movie. They've just been spec scripts. Yeah, it's like the, the latter-day Hellraiser movies. Oh, well, someone else can do a Hellraiser podcast. <laughs> someone else has done <laughs> a very good Hellraiser podcast, actually. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so, yeah, anyway, let's get back to uh, Star Trek. <laughs> I love it. We say there's so much to say about Star Trek, and we talk about everything but Star Trek, because this movie came out... As the 25th anniversary of Star Trek was approaching, take a moment to feel old. I know. <laughs> yeah. Next Gen was already on our screens. It was already out there and running. Oh, yeah. But they weren't quite ready to 
jump that franchise to the big screen. Uh, there was already, I think, the startings of the mutterings of generations, but they wanted to have something out for the 25th anniversary. The last movie had been The Final Frontier. Mm. Yeah. The odd numbers of Star Trek movies being bad. Definitely a prophecy fulfilled. Well, I don't know. J.J. Abrams ruined that by making a really good 11th movie and then a really bad 12th movie. Cheers, J.J. He's very bad at pleasing fans. Look at Rise of the Skywalker as an example. I liked all of the Abrams Star Trek movies. I uh, well, I liked I liked Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> come at me, Internet. <laughs> Please don't come at me, Internet. <laughs> well, I, I really liked um, the Abrams Star Trek uh, number eleven. Thought that was great. I did not like Wrath of Khan, um, but I really liked Beyond. Star Trek Beyond was definitely my favourite of the three because it got on with having a bit of an adventure. Exactly, yeah. And I really enjoyed that, not just because it uses sabotage. That is also a strong one. <laughs> yeah. The love of Beastie Boys in the Abramsverse yeah. is definitely strong. But funny enough, we talk about having adventures, having it romps, steering the ship back into Ritalin Bay and talking about the undiscovered country, because this was following up to the final frontier, which was meant to be very deep and thoughtful, and at one point legitimately included a scene where Captain Kirk was going to fist fight Jesus on the bridge of the Enterprise. <laughs> The original pitch was going to be a Star Trek Academy movie, and the idea would be that uh, McCoy would be talking to some cadets. He was going to talk about how him, Kirk, and Spock met, and it was going to go back and forth. The original cast shut that down. <laughs> I'm sure DeForest Kelly was fine with it, because he's like, payday, and I don't have to jump over stuff. So Leonard Nimoy was asked to conceive a new film, having had this one shot down by the original cast. And then, and then briefly... The idea was shot around of them meeting up with the Next Generation cast. They didn't want to stop television production because at that point, Next Gen was really getting into the swing of things. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was it was peak Next Gen by that point. Yeah. First season, bit ropey. Second and third and beyond. Oh, so, so good. good. They also approached Nicholas Meyer, who directed The Wrath of Khan, and said, do you have any ideas? And he went, no. So Nimoy visited Mai's house and said, well, what if the wall came down in outer space? Because the Klingons were always kind of the stand-ins for Russians. They were the Cold War enemy of Star Trek. And something sparked in Maya's head because he was like, yes, I get this. We start with a massive explosion like a space Chernobyl. The fall of the Klingon Empire. Uh, the main kind of presidential character of the Klingons in the film. I forget his name, but he was meant to be Gorbachev. So they were really playing up to it. So Nimoy got Myers hired to write the film. And they did that, one, because he was a good writer, responsible for Wrath of Khan, but also it would offset any political tensions between Nimoy and Shatner because if Nimoy came on board to write it and then potentially direct it, Shatner would get his wig in a twist. Mm -hmm. Maya came on board to write and direct it. Obviously, Wrath of Khan, that was a movie that really elevated Shatner as an actor. He'd probably be okay with it. Yeah. So they wrote this moderate budget film but that was big on adventure, but perhaps with a slightly higher threat level than The Voyage Home, which was essentially put some whales in a fish tank. <laughs> yeah. As it turns out, Meyer did go on to direct the film, although he claims that when he was hired to write the screenplay, it never occurred to him that he might direct. Really? Yeah, I don't believe that. No, no. <laughs> no one with that level of pedigree with Star Trek ever goes, yeah, I'll write the film, but I've no interest in directing it. I'm definitely not writing something that I would want to direct. I'm going to take a back seat on this one, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that is how they got up to production. For more on it, spoilers, this is number one for more than one week. 
we'll talk about it again next week yeah we'll talk about it next week and our number one song in the charts it's a new entry it's Shakespeare's sister with the absolute banging tune Stay for new songs that we're getting in the charts because obviously we started with Bohemian Rhapsody and then we had some other stuff we had Wet 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 forever we don't hit their longest drainer we're fine (laughs) but this is the best new song this song is cracking oh it's so good it's number one for ages as well I think it's like number one for eight or so weeks it's going to be with us until the end of this series definitely and it not only was a killer song it had a great music video yeah. uh, it was inspired by um, Cat Women of the Moon like was the uh, visual yeah, yeah, yeah. and the tonal guide um, allegedly one of Shakespeare's sister was absolutely wasted during filming <laughs> Like when she comes in through the door and walks down the steps and is snarling at the camera, apparently Blotto, like literally had been necking vodka the moment she came before she came out. Well, considering that Marcella was fired from the band uh, a couple of years later, I think, after this song comes out. We were, yeah, she got sacked in 1993. Awkward. Yeah. <laughs> but they got, they're uh, Shakespeare's sister. They're reunited uh, in 2019. They performed on, they performed Stay on the Graham Norton Show in May. Happy days. Happy days indeed. I haven't actually gone back to watch it, but because this is uh, number one for the next couple of weeks, I'll try and watch it in between us recording the next episode. And our new games released this week, we've got two pretty big ones, actually. Well, I say two pretty big ones, one pretty big one. In Contra 3 Alien Wars, which we would get in the UK as Super Probotector, and Two Crude Dudes for the Mega Drive, a game which I still own and I'm quite fond of. I will say I think Super Nintendo wins with (laughs) Contra 3, or Super Probotector. Yes, exactly. Which, design-wise, seemed to steal a lot from Pat Labor. Like, the, the robot redesigns, which they put in for reasons of violence... (laughs) <laughs> Sorry for listeners, there was a kind of a nonchalant what the hell truck there. <laughs> there was a very good eye roll in that. They cut that for violence. Castlevania, fine. fine. <laughs> yeah, but we have to get Super Probotector instead. No, it was a, it was definitely it was one of my uh it was one of my favourite games of the Super Nintendo, um, regardless of whether we're talking Contra or Probotector. And hard as nails. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely brutally tough. I was actually playing it quite recently because we had our New Year's party at Four Quarters in Hackney, which has got a Super Nintendo setup because it's got you know lots of console setup. That's his whole gimmick. And me and uh, uh, one of our editors, Simon, was playing Super Probotector on the SNES. And playing it sober is hard enough. Playing it wasted is very, very difficult. I can imagine because it's very unforgiving with its like hit windows and yeah. the precision of the jumping. And were you actually playing it on a CRT? Yes. Oh, okay, I was going to say, because if they had actually plugged it into an LCD screen, then you got latency. <laughs> yeah. And you really do get some bad latency on those upscalers with the uh, digital TVs. In which case, I'm going to pretend that it was on an LCD screen, and that's why we were bad. Oh, <laughs> maybe it was an LCD screen in a CRT screen maybe. case. <laughs> that's exactly what it was. There we are. There your, we your, your, your integrity is safe. But what can be found in the magazines? Well, we're on the last week of the February issues, and to be blunt, pickings from the news pages are slim. So I decided to take a look at the letters section. Oh, interesting. No. Oh, right. Well, yes, but also... <laughs> You discover that the toxicity 
of the comment section started way before the internet. Yes. And a lot of it came from the magazine responders as well as the people writing in. So like those people that say like, oh, toxic fandom in Star Wars has really only come in since the Disney era. And I was like, we all forgotten what happened when the Ewoks came out. We all forgotten what happened to poor old Jar Jar. This has been around for a long old time. So would you like to hear a couple of choice letters? I'd love to. From Meme Machines. And mean Yob. One thing I'd forgotten is that Yob was actually pulling double duty and he was doing a letters column on both Meme Machines and CVG. That makes sense, yeah. So, first letter. Dear Yob, connect the aerial lead from your Mega Drive that goes to the television and just put it on the aerial from your pocket TV. Joining them with sellotape would work. Now tune your pocket TV in the usual way. When you've got the Mega Drive graphics on the screen, you can use the Mega Drive joypad to play. This will also work with the Atari ST and the Game Gear, so if you've got a pocket TV, you can save money on a TV tuner. Okay. Yeah. Job's response. What a... <laughs> <laughs> now, I just said a word that we're going to censor. Yeah. Because... Back then, you wouldn't. You shouldn't really say it. <laughs> it's been said on this show as well. Actually, it's been featured. Uh, and it was the word the Games Master described the lemmings as. Yes, there we go. He described them as what a lemming. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> so you think Mr. Jazzman is all sort of nice? Oh no! Is he going to testify all over us now? Why do you print games with low ratings? I mean, why should you do reviews on games that are absolutely crap? And this was from Sergu Gutsweeker the third. The Netherlands. Hmm. Response from Jazz. So you know that you shouldn't buy them. You stupid, clog-wearing, Edam-eating <laughs> cretin. <laughs> Bloody hell. Not so nice now, is no. he? <laughs> Truly, his, his mask has been revealed. He is the literal two-face of the Games Master universe. Julian the Asnel, right now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, right, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to Games Master, the kind of show that your mother warned you about and your granny kept under a favourite chair next to a mint humbugs. Games reviews, tips and challenges and a lovely little souffle recipe from my Auntie Marisha all add up to a piping hot show delivered warm into your inviting lap. So Dominic Diamond welcomes us into the show, calling it the sort of show that your mother warned you about and your granny kept under her chair next to the mint humbugs. I mean, this could be a number of things. It could be a dildo, it could be a vibrator. Could be, as was the case with my grandmother, a uh, World War II era pump-action shotgun from a nearby US Army base. <laughs> I mean, I was just going to say, my, if it was my nan, it would have been her glasses case. Or a nice little crossword book. No, this was a pump-action <laughs> shotgun. <laughs> well, uh, does your auntie have a nice souffle recipe? Possibly. I don't know. I don't talk to them anymore. Oh, wait. I don't know if mine do either, actually, in all fairness. I don't think I've ever had a homemade souffle recipe at all. I don't think I've had a souffle full stop. <laughs> What is food. a souffle? An excellent question. I'm just going to do a quick Google of it now. <laughs> oh, it's the one that rises. I see it a lot on uh, MasterChef. It's the one that they tell you never to do because it's too hard. Oh, yeah. It rises and then it deflates. That's and it, yeah. it's usually the punchline in sitcoms. That's it, yes. That's where I remember it from. I'm sure there was a Fresh Prince of Bel-Air episode where... Uh, the butler was always trying was trying to make a souffle and it just kept sinking. Yep. See, oh. it's 
Posh people food. Posh people food. Anyway, but Dominic Diamond has said the Games Master has had his auntie souffle. He doesn't give a review of it, but it does lead us into our first challenge. Let's head over to Games Master and find out what it is. Welcome to my kingdom, where games are generated and challenges conceived. I am so pleased you've been able to join me once again. The first of my little challenges this week involves a decidedly feisty young superhero by the name of Strider. You have three minutes to guide him through the Russian city of Kazafu and to defeat the city's final guardian, a gargantuan metallic reptile. The forces of good are depending on you. Try not to let them down. Right, we've got three minutes to get through level one of Strider on the Mega Drive and beat the end of level guardian. Just as a side note on the whole souffle thing and the <laughs> Games Master having sampled it a number of times, we did a skew a dick joke and actually go for a vagina joke, which I think is a fair step up for That's Dominic Diamond and showing nice, a yeah. bit of gender diversity. <laughs> But it does mean that you've got the mental image of, like, Patrick Moore as the Games Master giving cunnilingus, which is a bit weird. Yeah, particularly if it's in the Games Master garb as well. With pixels. <laughs> and that butt plug. <laughs> the butt plug and the monocle coming in every so often just to squirt him with a bit of water. Anyway, Strider. Um... <laughs> So what a game. What a game. I mean, EGM was very impressed uh, with uh, Strider when it came out on the Mega Drive. Devoting portions of it, this is directly from Wikipedia, so you know it's uh, legit. Devoting portions of three separate issues on it and awarding it the best video game of the year in 1990 and the winner of their best graphics category. And in 1992, Mega placed Strider at 31st in their list of top Mega Drive games of all time. Now, the arcade original of this game was hard as tits. Oh, yeah. It was a 10p guzzler. I played it in the arcade. I don't think I ever got beyond the first level. It's tough, man. I played the game then later on on the Mega Drive and also the uh, the PS1 remaster that yeah, they yeah, did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I did a lot better in that, but that's because it wasn't in the arcade and so the difficulty was toned down a fair chunk. I love the look of the game. It had a very weird pace. Like, yeah. your walk animation didn't always correlate with the speed you are moving. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That, that feels like the very arcade conversion-y type of the Mega Drive games, because like Altered Beast has something similar to that as well. With Strider, I always felt it was a deliberate stylistic choice because one of the whole ideas of the game mechanic was it very much encouraged you to jump and use climbing and basically do anything other than walk. Yeah. So while the animation loop of him walking was beautiful, it wasn't nearly as good as him jumping and swinging around and slashing his blade all over the shop. Makes you feel badass as well. Oh my god, everything about this game is badass. He's in figure-hugging spandex. Yes. He's got a massive chopper. <laughs> he does well I mean yeah I know and it just feels like we've got to try and do the dick jokes because Dominic Diamond is very very lacking in them today oh man he must have forgotten to take his vitamin D supplement in the morning there it is yeah there was just there was nothing in there now I think this challenge is pretty much impossible are you confident yep well I have my doubt Chevron but I wish you all the best if you'd like to plump yourself in our games playing chair we'll get ready to begin well, our victim to play this game is Chevron Hart from Harrow. Uh, Dominic Diamond says to him that he thinks this challenge is impossible, but young Chevron is very confident. Yeah, he's like, do you think he's stand a chance? And Chevron's like, yep. Also, special note, what a name. Yeah, Chevron, Chevron Hart. That's a wrestling name, that is. <laughs> Just... That's from the Hart Family Dungeon, Calgary. <laughs> That's, uh, that is such a cool name. That is the coolest name of any kid that we've had on this show thus far. And it's very stark because then you go to Neil West from Sega Power. With his stylish red cap. 
your boy, <laughs> Neil West. Um, he says that this is a tough challenge, mostly because the time limit is very tough. Uh, and tells him to pick up a lot of the power-ups and get the droids because they're going to be able to help you throughout the level. He gives some fairly sound advice, and mm. I think I would have taken that advice gleefully and with relish. I don't think that Chevron even listened to him because I don't think he needed to. I was about to say the exact same thing. Chevron was confident because, boy howdy, does this kid know what he is doing with this game. Here we come to a problem with this particular challenge, and unfortunately it kind of bleeds into some of the rest of the episode. He is so good at this game that he turns a very tricky and difficult challenge that should be nail-biting to watch into something that's actually a bit boring. Yeah. Because they cut to him... And he doesn't even look like he's concentrating. He's just breezing through this. He loses a bit of health, but sometimes he seems to use that just as a way to get the brief flash of invincibility. That's exactly it. He damage boosts himself. Yeah. he. This kid was a born speedrunner. He yes. was there to get through it. 100%. And he, were, he knew this level back to front to the point where we go through. And by the time they've even finished introducing the concept of the mid-level boss, he's done he's already been he uses a shortcut to get through to the end of level guardian right at the end and kills him with like a couple of hits because he knows exactly what he is doing yeah he knows that he needs to aim for the body and not worry about the tail sweep. i think he takes another little bit of hit boosting just to get straight through the tail smack the guy in the head boom done yeah it is a phenomenal run it is incredible this kid i hope went on to great gaming things but even though he wins, it's kind of anticlimactic because at no point was there any real sense of threat or danger. Well, we just said that Neil West said that the real challenging part of this is not getting through the level and beating the boss. It's doing it in three minutes. This kid does it with 45 seconds to spare. He could have done the level halfway again. He yeah. could have carried on to the next level and seen how far he got. Yeah. That would have actually been fun. He's also clearly been watching his Games Master because he uh, does a lot of leaping to save time. So he watched the consultation zone that we had a few weeks ago. Or he just had common sense. <laughs> Could be. Um, yeah, Chevron in the post-match interview says that he took a few hits that put him on edge, but... Really, like, he just doesn't seem phased by it at all. He went in there with us. He reminds me of, do you remember that kid that we had on a couple of weeks ago? That was just like, the one that was dead nervous. Like, oh, yeah, I'll give it a go. I'll be really good at it. I hope I am anyway. And he gets, he goes, oh, my legs are like jelly. He's got that. When that kid sat down, he's like, I know exactly what I need to do. Chevron is exactly like that kid, but without the nervousness. He is daddy cool. He is. Oh, absolutely. He is. He knew he was walking away with the, uh, the joystick. Oh, yeah, he absolutely knew. And I don't care whether this was a single take or multiple takes. It was, while not most exciting, beautiful to watch. And, yeah, probably some of the best out-and-out -out gameplay that we've seen on this show so far. So for his trouble, he gets his Golden Games Master joystick and walks off majestically into the sunset. Chevron, that was unbelievable. I said at the start I thought it was impossible, but you proved me wrong. Was there any point where you thought, Dominic's right, it is impossible? When my energy went down at first, I was a bit worried, and the only difficult was the time. Yeah, yeah, but you leap past those spiders, especially I thought we were going to snarl you a bit, but he didn't. But Chevron, you win one of the most prestigious and certainly the most aesthetic prize in television, a Golden Games Master Joystick! Which is also aesthetically pleasing. It is. <laughs> when the light glints off the main shaft, you're, <laughs> you're in the diamondism zone. This week, hold on tight and try not to eject as we look at light simulations. 
First up on the Amiga, get high as a kite with Birds of Prey. The Birds of Prey is really sort of the Ferrari of flight sims. I mean, you're looking at something which is so horrendously complicated that you're quite chuffed you can actually get out of the hangar and take off. It was complicated enough to be interesting, but not overcomplicated, so you, you got bored of it. If, you, if you're sort of a, more of a train spotter sort of uh, flight sim fan, then who wants everything to be accurate, you'll love it. Flight simulators are something that I love in concept, but less in practice. Well, hold on tight and try not to eject, is what Diamond, Dominic Diamond tries to tell us to do. <laughs> I want to like flight sim games. I want to like flight arcade games. I want to like Ace Combat. And I want to like Afterburner. And try as I might, I don't. And it's not them, it is me. Yeah. But unfortunately, it means that this review section... I, I, I ended up, I, I don't have much to say about this section. No, I'm, I'm, me neither. And the same thing, like if you like flight sims, that, that's not to say that you're a, a nerd or anything like that. It's just that they're not for me. And I, I do think it's on me rather than the games because it's if it, this is your thing, then these reviews are probably good. And actually I will say, this is most consistently good review section that we've had. There's 80%, 72% and 80% again. There isn't a, technically there's not a bad game in the bunch. So you said, not saying that they're a nerd. I'm totally saying that they're a nerd. But the thing is, I'm saying that they're just a different kind of nerd. Yeah. I'm a nerd. You're a nerd. Absolutely. Different strokes, different folks. Absolutely. Well, uh, Diamondism. <laughs> Well, our first game is Birds of Prey for the Amiga, which scores 80%. Uh, we've got Jeremy Delaroy from Zero Magazine, uh, who calls this uh, a big 3D game. It's the Ferrari of flight sims. It's so complicated, you'll be chuffed you can get out of the hangar and take off. In fairness, that is me on most flight simulators. we also got a diamondism in here. We, he uh, introduced the game saying you can get high as a kite playing the game. Is that a diamondism? I feel like it is. I mean, are we talking kind of like smoking pot? Are we talking more David Carradine? You know, I, I think it's more the. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to say what I just mimed. <laughs> I think we're, well, let's stick with the first one. Let's yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, but it's interesting to well because Jeremy says that you know it's so complicated you'll be chuffed you can get out of the hangar but then we've got Ian Streeter who we, I feel like is our flight sim nerd for this one who can kind of give more of a gaming perspective on it uh, thinks that it's not complicated enough now they like this game it got a solid review I looked up some reviews online to see what other people thought of it and Computer Gaming World complained it lacked depth realism had a flawed targeting system and gave it two out of five Wow. I know, brutal. That is brutal, considering that they give it 80% here. Although I will say, this 80% that they score it is not indicative of what Jeremy and uh, Trenton from Amiga Format are actually saying in their comments. Because Trenton Webb from Amiga Format calls it the train spotting of flight sims and doesn't sound that interested in it. And as I said, Jeremy said that it's too complicated, but yet it gets 80%. Do you remember last week, this slam piece? in the news section. I do remember. Which was on this game. Of course it was, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So man, there is something going on here. So they didn't even give it a review. It was just the slam piece, which you can hear in the uh, magazine section of episode seven, mm -hmm. where they just called it Turkeys of Prey. That's right. Yes, I remember that now. Interesting editorial choices here being made by both CGW, uh, CVG and Games Master. Yeah. Next up on the Mega Drive, pick out those bogeys with a sidewinder or two in F-22 Interceptor. 
loads and loads of hours of play there. Brilliant stuff, great graphics, great sound. On F22, I just felt a little bit detached, a little bit removed. Maybe the colour is just a bit too bright, I'm not sure. Something looked constantly about it and not a simulation. F22 was not very good because it was just too, there's too complicated controls on the joypad. Well, our next game is F22 Interceptor for the Mega Drive, which scores a very respectable 72%. Pick out those bogeys, Dominic Diamond tells us. Uh, and Jeremy says that it's uh, got great graphics with loads of hours of gameplay. That seems fairly accurate. It was quite well received for the most part. It was also a bit of a rarity. Something they don't go into in this review is it was a co-op flight sim. Much like a real F-22, you could have the pilot and the co-pilot. The pilot would take care of the actual mechanics and the movement of the plane, and the co-pilot would take care of the targeting and the weapons. Sounds pretty fun. It does sound pretty fun and would also take care of one of the criticisms of the game, which was that the controls were a little too complicated for a joypad. And in those days of a three-button, because this was pre-six-button Mega Drive, oh, yeah. you're asking a lot of buttons to do a lot of contextual double duty, and I don't know how you're flipping around between targeting and whatnot. I, I've never played the game, so I don't know how they made it work, but it does sound like the sort of game that in co-op mode, if you've really got someone that you're in sync with and maybe you've got like a, like a beanbag in front of the sofa so you're sat in the pilot and co-pilot position, yeah. could be a lot of fun. Could be a lot of fun. And actually, I mean, that makes sense as well because Ian says that it's um, he didn't think it was very good I and mean, it was too complicated. And I wonder if that is because it's, you know, on that three-button pad, which ties into what Trenton says, where he goes, something about it made him feel removed from the game. Maybe it was the colors, but really, it's because he's an Amiga format guy. It was too console-y. <laughs> console or not? There is one thing that F-22 Interceptor is remembered for more than its actual flight simulator component, and that is its game over screen. Okay, tell me more. When the player runs out of lives, instead of just going to a standard game over, you go to kind of a hospital type screen with an x-ray of the pilot's skull with mouth open and everything, and you hear the pilot's heart stop beating and it displays a caption that says, All vital signs flat. Bloody hell! Patient deceased. You are dead! <laughs> that would scare the shit out of me as a child! I'm like, I am? I thought this was a video game. Especially because around this time I'd have seen Last Starfighter. I'd be very worried. <laughs> Finally, on the Amiga, Pip Pip Tallyho whacks that moustache and chalks away in the World War I simulation, Knights of the Sky. Uh, Knights of the Sky is good simply because it takes you back to the basics of seat of the pants flying, as it was World War One style. The only drawback to Knights of the Sky is your enemy is a bit crap, really. I mean, one shot and they go down in loads of flames. Our final game is on the Amiga, so Trenton's bound to like it. Uh, it's Knights of the Sky, Pip Pip Tally Ho and all of that. It's a World War One flight sim. Wax your moustaches indeed. Indeed. And Jep Trenton does like it. He said it's good because it takes you back to basics. And by basics, he means the Amiga. Um, I'm, I'm oh! kidding. I'm kidding. That was because I'm a Mega Drive boy. Uh, and Jeremy says that it's good, but the enemies are a bit crap. He's right. The enemies are a bit crap. And they acknowledge this because here we have a very, very early example of post-release patching. Ooh, please. You could send in some blank floppy disks to Microprose and they would send you back a revised version uh, that would add more realistic plane damage because they basically mentioned in the review, one hit, you're down. Yeah. And um, added in as a feature NPC planes that do their own patrols but are on your side rather than being Mm. enemies. Yeah. 
and this was all done post-release. There was one or two different revisions, and I'm just like, that's nice. Yeah. That's that's kind of cool. Did set a dangerous precedent for where we are now, where you put in a game, day one, 25 gig download. Oh, yeah. Or you get a game that when it, uh, the clock ticks over into 2020, you can't actually play the bloody thing anymore. Hi there, 2K dev team. <laughs> It's ironic that that game is called 2K20 and you cannot play it in 2K20. Yeah, a literal Y2K bug. <laughs> we are talking about WWE 2K20. <laughs> now for our new game section. A game that's bound to get flight simulation fans rubbing their helmets with glee when it's released later this year is Attack. Julia Coombs from Microprose Software gives us a sneak preview. Attack is set in the year 2001. It's in Colombia. You assume the role of supreme commander of a US government-controlled um, undercover agency. There are no set missions in attack. There's just one overall objective, and that is to bankrupt um, the drug barons of Colombia. What we want to achieve with the game, really, is to extend the parameters that are set by current flight simulators on the market at the moment. Because not only is there a true-to-life flight simulation aspect to the game, but there's also a huge strategy element in there as well. Anyway, let's get back to Microprose because, and I wonder if this is why Knights of Sky got a very, very good 80% despite those flaws. It's because Microprose Software are here to uh, promote their new game, Attack, which is going to have flight sim fans rubbing their helmets in glee. Ooh, friction. Ow. But Julia Coombs is here to talk to us about it and basically give us a big old fluff piece. This is pure fluff piece as well. Now, I originally had difficulty finding this on Google because the problem is if you search for attack, A-T-A-C, it automatically tries to move you to attic attack. <laughs> which is possibly why when it was released in May, it was released as attack, the secret war against drugs. Yeah, got a nice full name there. Um, because Julia tells us that the game is set in the futuristic year of 2001. Apparently by the time of release, 2003. <laughs> yeah, really? They yeah, it did it. jump forward a couple of years, at least according to the blurb that I found. Okay. Um, but she tells us that uh, unlike a lot of flight sims, there's no set missions. There's just one overall objective, which is to bankrupt the drug barons and push the boundaries of flight simulators with strategy. So kind of an early open world game where there's objectives, yeah, like, but yeah. you're allowed to do things your own way. It was a mixture of strategy and flight simulator. There were segments where you um, had to, to kind of gather intel, send out spies, mm -hmm. plot your missions. You had different kinds of planes and I think some attack helicopters as well. Researching this game for this segment was a little more difficult because it doesn't have a Wikipedia page. No. I found other websites that reviewed it and talked about it, and so I was able to garner some information from there. I'm not surprised it doesn't have a Wikipedia page because, dear God, did Microprose release a lot of flight simulators. <laughs> yeah. eight, eight flight simulators alone in 1992. Wow. And that's not including other tactical military games, which included, like, naval battle and God knows what else. Yeah. It was very much their bread and butter. They released, I think, another seven or eight in 93, and it went on for a while. They did eventually broaden their horizons more. They already did some RPG-type D&D games, but... Yeah, they knew their market, and their market was... Um, flight sims. Flight sims, yeah. Yeah. It's just a shame as well, this segment, because it was a fluff piece, as you say. And I was kind of looking forward, because they started it last week, where they said, there's so many consoles out there at the moment, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks going through the 16-bit console era. But they drop it for, for this fluff piece instead. And I guess it's just a shame that they dropped it for this week. 
but I guess they just wanted to start building it up because it was due out in May 1992. And you know, Microprose flight simulators, it's not like they came along every day. <laughs> it was technically every other week. Yeah. But let's get into our celebrity challenge. So what have we got in store for us, Games Master? Hello again. As you probably noticed by now, I'm rather partial to a bit of sport. Mensana incorpore sana, as they say. For this week's second challenge, I thought I'd drop for a rather quirky new sport called baseball. If you don't know the rules, it's rather like our rounders. Contestants will have one innings each in which to score as many runs as possible. An innings is over when three batsmen are out. So keep your eye on the ball and give it your best shot. I loved how Games Master introduced this by saying, as you may have noticed, I'm partial to a bit of sport. No shit, Sherlock, you don't bloody say. It's almost like this TV show falls under the sports remit of <laughs> Channel 4. He also uses Latin, posh bastard. <laughs> did you catch what this Latin was? I did not. I tried to, and I'm just like, it's very difficult to search for a translation of Latin when you don't actually speak Latin, so you don't know what it is you're meant to be writing down. I'm guessing it was, I like sports. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Games Master calls baseball a new sport uh, and compares it to uh, Britain's version of rounders. Uh, basically, we've got one innings to score as many points as you can. Now, if American listeners are out there and then suddenly you're like going, what? New sport? Comparing it to rounders? It's okay. Calm down. I know it's an unfair comparison. For a start, I understand the rules of rounders. <laughs> and it's better. It's absolutely better. No, different horses for different courses. If you're a baseball nerd, fair play to you. I don't understand it. <laughs> But I love movies on baseball. That, well, yeah, this is it. We were talking about this before we came uh, on mic. That I don't like watching baseball. I find baseball to be a very boring sport to watch. And the, the, the few handful of times that I have watched it. But I bloody love a movie that is based on baseball. You put in a good bit of score. Or maybe you throw some Kevin Costner in there for Field of Dreams. And just, boom, it goes out there. I would also argue the same for American football. I would also argue the same for rest of the world football. Yes, yeah, 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 maybe. Great example, recent movie starring WWE wrestler who for some reason has blocked me on Twitter. <laughs> Genuinely don't know why. Never interacted with him until I went to look at his Twitter feed and he blocked me. But yeah, Dave Batista, final score. Crack of a little action movie. Makes football genuinely exciting because you know what? There's a chance that the entire stadium will blow up. <laughs> Well, I'm going to give a shout out because there's quite a lot of uh, baseball movies that we could talk about. You mentioned their Field of Dreams, League of Their Own. Uh, Major League was the other one we were talking about. Yeah, Major League. Uh, 42, which was the movie um, about uh, Jackie Robinson, which has got Chadwick Boseman in it. That's really good. Moneyball's another one. But I'm going to give a personal shout out to Rookie of the Year, directed by Wet Bandit himself, Daniel Stern, and starring Thomas Ian Nicholas, who would go on to be uh, the really wet one, the one who was always wanted to do things together in American Pie. Oh, he's, yeah. He's the We Will Get Laid kid from American Pie. But anyway, Rookie of the Year is a great film. It's about a little kid who who becomes a major league baseball star because he breaks his arm and then when it heals becomes incredibly powerful at pitching. I remember this film. It's rad. That's pretty cool. There was a whole raft of movies around that time of X happens to child who then gained Y powers. <laughs> yeah. I really, I mean, I've, I've got a bit of a soft spot for kids sports movies like Mighty Ducks. 
um, Little Giants, things like that. Karate Kid. Karate Kid, yeah, great example. Love it. And yeah, Rookie of the Year is a great one. Uh, but anyway, we're not, not talking about the, these films now. We're talking about baseball for the Neo Geo. And playing this challenge is World Neo Geo Baseball Champion Emily Cash taking on her husband's 1987 Wimbledon Champion, Pat Cash. So that's a fun little duo. Emily, if I could start with you, you're obviously the pre-match favourite. Are you going to crush Pat into the ground tonight? Pulverise him. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's good to see you. Now, Pat, you're a pretty big hitter on the court. Are we going to see that converted into a lot of home runs? Well, I hope so. I mean, I've got a, I've got a good eye for it, but, you know, she's a, ter- a terrific pitcher, so uh, I, might have to, I might have to win it with my pitching. I'm not sure. Hmm. Did you find anything online about this World Neo Geo Baseball Championship? Absolutely nothing. In fact, the only thing I could find about the World Neo Geo Baseball Championship was an article about Pat Cash, who said that he was once married to World Neo Geo Baseball Champion Emily Cash, which makes me think this is the only mentioning of it in in history. Is it kind of like the record breakers thing, the Guinness Book of World Record, where you don't actually have to beat anyone, you just have to have done it? Yes. So you have to meet a threshold, and it's like, I've played this game five times. There you go. World champion. I wonder if it's like, do you remember Sonic Blast Man, where we had an episode two where they said, like, oh yeah, he's the world champion of this game. Do you think it's more like, we found him in the arcade and he's dead good? We found him in the arcade, he had the most 20 piece stacked up on the machine, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so we gave it to him. Because the other thing is, this is not an easy game to be able to practice because it was on the Neo Geo. And I know that Pat Cash probably had a bit of cash flinging about the place, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So maybe he couldn't afford a uh, Neo Geo for the home. I mean, it was one of the launch titles for yes. both um, the arcade system and for the home system. So yeah. it'd been around a couple of years at this point, And a sequel to the game came out this year, 1992. Yeah. Uh, Pat Cash um, won the Australian Open in 87 and 88, won the French Open in 1988, and Wimbledon in 1987. And he also won the US Open in 1984. This is a man who has won a lot of tennis. But somehow still can't pick up a baseball shirt that fits. Because <laughs> this thing drowns him. He's wearing it like a moo-moo. Oh, these were given to them, no doubt. Yeah, I, I reckon so, actually. But I'm like, where did they find it? Because it's huge. <laughs> I mean, you- I know they're meant to be worn kind of baggy, like American football jerseys, but also, good gust, he'd take off. Um, he officially retired in 1997. Uh, the only thing I could really find about these two is that uh, he and Emily became an item in 1990 and split up in 2002. So they had a, you know, 12 year innings. I suspect the real fractures in the relationship started on this show. <laughs> yeah, because world champion Neo Geo baseball champion Emily Cash, spoilers, is not very good at this game. And Pat Cash, not world Neo Geo baseball champion, is way better at it. But before we get to that utter trouncing, because dear Lord, it's kind of awkward to watch. It is boring as well, because as you... Baseball. <laughs> yeah. It was a sequel to a NES game. Oh, really? And the NES game had a lot more strategy in it, and you could do custom teams, which mm. I think would have been fairly advanced for a NES game at the time but for the sequel and for the arcade strip all that out although you could save your progress on a memory card Hmm. Dominic Diamond of course asks Emily if she's going to crush Pat into the ground tonight she said she's going to pulverise him and Pat goes oh yeah (laughs) calm down dear this is innuendo not actual foreplay (laughs) although who are we to judge if Pat and Emily engage in a bit of BDSM 
S&M standing for Sega Mega Drive. <laughs> I actually found an interview online with Dave Perry that someone had done. And in that, they were sort of asking him about the running order of how they shot Games Master. Oh, I saw this, the and, screenshots. Yeah, yeah, and in the interview, he sent across a screenshot and it's got this on it, which is the other way I found about her being the world champion Neo Geo baseball thing. Um, and the, the screenshot he's got that of this running order shows that this was shot after lunch on the same day as Sonic Blastman that we talked about earlier and Mad Dog McCree. I don't think until I'd seen this running order that it ever occurred to me how out of order they were shooting right. these episodes. Same here. Yeah, completely same here. And part of me wonders if that's why when we get these challenges, which are like, and we're going to throw this out to the audience, if that was a case of, we need some filler. Yeah. Is there a tape somewhere of challenges that never made the show, of more of these fillers? Well, interestingly, you should say that because the other game that was shot on this day was a game called Magician Lord. And I, I mean, we've got a couple more episodes to go of this series, but I don't recall that game being played in either episodes nine or 10. No, I've, I've watched those episodes to do first passes and make rough notes. And I don't remember seeing those games. I mean, is there the case that they had people come in and play these games and they were like, oh, these were terrible. Yeah. These were awful. We can't show these. But we can show the neighbors one. This raises the question of how low was the bar? Because, again, not punching down, but some of these challenges were bloody awful. Okay, well, we've obviously got a bit of a grudge match here. If you want to see who wins between Emily and Pat Cash, join us after these messages. Living your everyday life, your clothes pick up grime and smells. The traffic. Eating out. Working out, the kind of greasy dirt that can cause stale odours, you need Radian Micro. Unbeatable on dirt and odours. Radian Micro, every day on everything. Now, that's as clean and fresh as your clothes can get. There's a magical place we're on our way there. With toys in the millions all under one from Sega, the Master System 2 is an 8-bit console, plays over 120 fabulous games with superb graphics and high-quality sound. Toys R Us price $57.94. There's millions to I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With its milk and cheese, Dairy Lee's a good source of calcium, but it's the taste kids will give anything well, for. I can't wait till tomorrow. Why? What are we doing? Oh, we're watching you kiss Veronica Dribblethwaite. <laughs> to Games Master, we are ready for a thrilling baseball contest between Emily Cash, who's playing the Wildflowers baseball team, and her husband, 1987 Wimbledon champion Pat Cash, who's opted for the comic Astro Boy. We come back from the ad break, and Tim Boone from CVG is in the booth. Welcome to the ballpark, Diamond, Diamond, Diamond tells us. But Tim Boone says that uh, Pat Cash has to get the home runs in early, and they point out if it's a tie, it will go down to hits. I thought it was an easy one to get in strokes, but, you know, Donnie Diamond went classy. Pat is loving this game. He is having a whale of a time. You can hear him laughing as he does really, really well in his innings. He is a whooping and a hollering. He is having a good old time. He's probably one of the most vocal game players we've had. Emily altering her pitches very well in this game. Pat swings again, a little ground ball here. Is it going to be, it could be a one base hit here and they're safe. It's certainly the most vocal since Annabelle Croft in episode two. Yeah. Definitely. And um, who was also very happy and enthusiastic to be there. Yeah, totally. Maybe it's just, maybe it's tennis stars. Maybe it's tennis. What do you think about tennis players? They are all oh, very vocal. Yeah, you're oh, right. On the pitch. Yeah. But Pat loses someone straight away. Uh, finally, because he has a lot of like weak wristed hits and then finally gets a big hit uh, and he risks getting one of his men across the plate and he just about manages it. Another big hit by Pat and his bases are loaded. Gets the second runner across. Bases are still loaded for another big hit. He gets two across. Finally, finally, Emily gets a second runner out, but he gets a runner over during that period. So he's 5-0. and oh, Three strikes, Pat's out for his first innings. Or his only innings. This was... Brutal. Like he was hammering it. He had control of the bases. He he knew what he was doing. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself while I was watching this, why didn't they split this like the ad break halfway through? So you do Pat's innings and then you have the ad break and then you come back for Emily's inning. I'm wondering if it's because even with the 45 seconds cut out, the Strider challenge was actually quite long. Mm, like yeah. the actual yeah, challenge. Yeah. And the review section with the microprose piece at the end. I, I didn't check the time code. It felt like it dragged. Yeah. Well, I mean, I thought it might just be because Emily gets in and gets out straight away. So actually, she'd come back for that second half of the challenge. It's just like, nope, Emily gets out. Uh, then she has a weak hit, uh, gets another out. And then she makes some fielding errors. And then she's out. She's mainly bunting them across the floor. She gets one good hit which looks like it could be a homer. It, it yeah. almost just went, shump. see, I know some terminology. It almost went straight out of the park, but no, it didn't, it bounced. And essentially she actually 
kind of got herself out by having two people running for the same base. And it's stupid as well because if you watch the little diamond in the corner, like so she's got a player on two players on second base, which means she can't have that. So she makes one of them run to third. And then once they get to third, she makes the second person also run to third. So she's got two players on this, on the same base. So she she has to be out. The, the challenge is over. And it's such a weird, weak finish that they have to cut to Dominic Diamond to explain to the viewers at home why the challenge is over. Oh my word, Emily had two runners running to the same base. Pat tied one of them, so it's the end of the ball game. Pat is the winner. Yeah, it was a bit of an anticlimax. And we go to the post game. Emily, commiserations. You started off pitching like a dream, but then Pat started banging you all over the ballpark. Dominic says that Emily was pitching up a dream. Didn't stop Pat from banging it all over the park. <laughs> he says you started pitching like a dream, and then Pat started banging you all over the ballpark. Oh, I didn't hear you. I thought it said banging it. <laughs> no, no, banging you all over the ballpark. Oh, okay. <laughs> He slid that one in quite successfully. That was a good one. Yeah. Uh, Emily thinks that because she was playing a, a team of girls. Yeah, she was playing as the Wild Flowers. Yes. Against the Cosmic Astro Boys. So, so Japanese. I tell you, great team names. I'd watch baseball if they had names like that. Uh, but she thinks that um, her girls couldn't keep their eye on the ball because they were looking at the other team. Okay. Yeah, Dominic Diamond calls Pat a big bully. But Pat thinks that World Neo Geo Baseball Champion Emily Cash let him win. I, I don't know if you can tell by my tone, but I'm questioning the validity of this World Championship <laughs> yeah. win. I'm hoping that someone can email me in with proof that, that, that it was a thing. Like, there's got to be something from some, a particularly Japanese magazine or something somewhere that verifies the existence of this championship. But no, her, Pat, her performance certainly doesn't suggest that she is a world champion. You know, Pat tries to say that he got lucky with a couple of fumbles. That may be so, but you've <laughs> walked all over this challenge. <laughs> yeah, so Pat wins and Dominic Diamond needs a breather and so do we. So let's head on into the consultation zone. Hello, Games Master. Welcome to my kingdom. I am delighted to see you. And what have you got to ask me? I'm playing the game Link for several months now and I found a hidden town, but I cannot find a magic key. Do you know where it is, please? Do I indeed, you audacious young urchin? Once you reach the hidden town, pick up the spell and then cast it at the far right of the town. That will make a door appear. Inside that door, you'll find the magic key. Thank you. God, another link, Zelda 2. Yeah. So our third, and I can, our third Zelda challenge. And I can understand why, because I think we've said before, how the hell do you work out what you're meant to do in these games? And especially when Games Master is just so dismissive, calling him an audacious young urchin. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, this kid doesn't know how to get to or where the secret key is. So you've got to go to this town, pick up the spell and uh, cast it at the far right of the town. And that will open up a cave. And that is where you get the hidden key. Yeah, cast it at the far right of the town where there are no on-screen clues that you might want to cast a spell. In fact, it is in fact just a blank screen. And it's weird as well because this takes us right back to episode one of this show when they did Simon's Quest. And that girl on there was stuck because she didn't know that you had to cast a spell right at the far left of a screen that will pick up a tornado that will take you through to the next world. Is this a Japanese culture thing that we just don't get <laughs> yeah. where a Japanese games player will have seen that blank screen and just gone, well, obviously. Obviously, there's a spell that I picked up here and we're going to cast that. Hello, Games Master. Oh, I'm delighted to see you. Welcome to my kingdom. I've heard that there's a hidden room on level two of Alex Kidd. I've been looking everywhere for it, but I just can't find it. Where should I be looking? Uh, 
dear, oh dear, we really are rather behind, aren't we? You will find the room just past the cage eagle. Simply jump up and down to break the rocks underground, and the hidden entrance to the room will reveal itself. Thanks, bye. Well, I'm always here to help you if I can. Our second kid, God, Alex Kidd's back again. Second kid wants to know if there's a hidden room on the second level of Alex Kidd in the high-tech world. Guess what? Alex Kidd's well rubbish. You do the exact same thing you did in the last Alex Kidd game, where you just jump up in the air, randomly kick, and you fall through the floor. And Games Master's also fairly dismissive. He goes, oh, still stuck on this piece of shit. <laughs> God, you're far behind. Why aren't you in the mill? <laughs> or cleaning chimneys or something, anything! He's basically saying, like, we're all playing Sonic now. Everyone gave up on Alex Kidd. Join the cult. Side note, I've noticed a lot of places around this time when I've been reading the magazines, they're not calling it Sonic. They're calling it Sega Sonic. Oh, which is interesting because the arcade game that will come out in a couple of years is called Sega Sonic the Hedgehog. Interesting. Yeah. Ah. Mm. With a little trackball. Yes. Which yeah. is nails. And it's very difficult to play on emulation. Very right, unless you've got a decent trackball, but actually finding a decent arcade scale trackball, pretty hard. Yes. Hello, Games Master. I keep getting killed trying to get past the robot dinosaur at the end of Escape from the Planet of the Robot Monsters. Is there any advice you can give me? Escape from the Planet of the Robot Monsters? Oh, yes. Rather a tricky one, this. You need to place your character against the grey door to the right of the screen. Then waggle your joystick left and right while continually dropping bombs. This will eventually result in you slipping through the gap in the doors and away from the troublesome beastie. Great, thanks very much. And our third kid uh, keeps getting killed by the robot dinosaur at, wait for this, the end of Escape from the Planet of the Robot Monsters. Guess what? What? I know this game. Oh, amazing. I own this game. I watched a playthrough of it on YouTube and I loved every second of it. It is pure 1950s schlock. Uh, I never saw the game looking this good because I owned it on the Amstrad CPC 464. I was terrible at it, but I played it a lot because it was one of the few games I had on the Amstrad CPC 464 three inch disc. Uh, it was quite a fun game. It had a lot of really great 1950s Buck Roger-esque imagery. The general plot is that you have to rescue a Dr. Sarah Bellum. <laughs> Sarah <laughs> Bellum. Very nice. I don't get it. Games Master sorts him out by saying that essentially you go against the door, you drop bombs and waggle your joystick. And I'm watching this and I'm like, well, one, I never got this far, but two, is this actual gameplay tactic or is this a glitch? Because I think, it's, I a think glitch. it's a glitch. I think it's a glitch. It's a great one. Oh yeah, no, get you through the door. Yeah, and but this feels like a glitch. And it is, as far as I can tell, that is like the end of the game. Yeah, 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 totally. I don't think this is like the, the true way to beat the game, but yeah. it is a way to beat the game. Well, it's time for our third and final challenge. So let's head on over to Games Master and find out what we're playing. After the rather frivolous antics of the previous challenge, I felt we should perhaps end tonight's show on a slightly more serious note. I've therefore come for a little puzzle from the game Terminator 2. You have 100 seconds in which to reassemble the robot's scrambled face. If you succeed, the face will smile. Let's hope it'll be no problemo for you. So we are playing Terminator 2. Now, I thought this was the DOS version of the game, but you said it was a different one. Did you say it was the... I'm fairly confident that this is the Amiga version. Okay. 
It was developed by a software house called Dementia that later went on to be known as Synthetic Dimensions. I think a slightly more tasteful name to move over to. Yep, absolutely. They were pitching an idea to Ocean Software, who had seen their previous game and were quite impressed. And Ocean went, well, we quite like your new idea, but we'd like you to do this cash-in first. (laughs) And Dementia were like, I don't know. And then they gave them the script to Terminator 2, and they're like, okay, we'll do it. What do you think the development time was for this game? I bet you it was short. It was six months. Oh, that is short. Six months with only a script and a trailer because they weren't allowed to see the movie, which means they had to do a lot of guesswork, some of which they got quite wrong. (laughs) It was also a very short game. It had between seven and nine levels, depending on which platform you were playing it on. And they compensated this by making a lot of the levels hard as nails. If you're wondering if we're going to be playing through one of those exciting levels, we're not. We're doing one of the bonus challenges, which is one of those little sliding puzzles where you've got to try and make a picture and you've got to try and make the Terminator's face and you've got 100 seconds to do so. If you went to like Warwick Castle or the Black Country Museum or I don't know, any of those really kind of dull school trips that were always rainy no matter when you did them yep these sliding puzzles were always in the gift shop at the end and you bought them because it was days before game boys or smartphones or tinder and so this sort of thing was still pretty interesting and it is kind of a fun physical puzzle but again it's not gripping television and what i find remarkable about this is that the arcade version of this game exists why aren't we playing the arcade version of this game I understand like we're not doing the SNES or the NES or the, either of the Game Boy versions because they're not, obviously the SNES and NES ones are very, very bad, but the arcade game's great. It would have made a lot more sense. It would have been a lot more visually interesting also because it was a light gun game and it yeah, was a big exactly. Way better. Like this and Alien 3, the gun. Yeah. I love the fact about the Alien 3 arcade game is it's not even called Alien 3, the arcade game. It's called Alien 3, the gun. <laughs> The only one, unless you got the two-player version. Yeah. So yeah, it just kind of boggles my mind that we said we're instead of playing something that's cool like that, we're playing this face-sliding game, which, as you say, does not make for gripping television. It's also somewhat hindered by the fact that, that like a lot of tying games, they couldn't actually use the likenesses of the actors. <laughs> yeah. It looks as much like Arnold as the action figures did, so I suppose yeah. it, it wasn't too bad. The actual graphics on the screen, while obviously not proving particularly taxing for the hardware. It looked good, nice level of shading, a nice portrayal of the T-800 endoskeleton. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it, it looked okay. Now we thought for a change, why not throw this challenge out to the members of our fluffy congregation here? So if there is anybody out in the audience who wants to grab their chance at a few minutes of fame by tackling the Terminator challenge, could you please thrust their arms up in an orderly manner? <laughs> now, um... How about that gentleman there? Would you like to come on down? Let's give him a round of applause. Welcome again, Martin. And your name is? Martin. And where are you from, Martin? I'm from Stanmore, Middlesex. Right, now do you know the Terminator 2 game? Uh, yeah. So you're familiar with our puzzle challenge? Yeah. If you'd like to plonk yourself down in our hot seat and we'll get ready to start the game. There's not a lot to talk about with this challenge. It's an open challenge as well to the fluffy congregation to get some five minutes of fame. Uh, And Dominic Diamond picks out a gentleman called Martin from Stanmore in Essex who has played the game before and is familiar with the challenge. You'd never guess it because he actually makes a mistake fairly early on and then spends the rest of the challenge just shuffling the same pieces around. There is that moment where he pauses, where he suddenly goes... Oh, I've cocked this up, haven't I? <laughs> when he starts hearing in his head, Hello, darkness, darkness my, my old friend. friend. 
Yeah, because Simon runs out, he fails, rubbish challenge. The puzzle was only 25% complete in the 100 seconds that he had. Yeah, not really a lot to say about this one. And then Martin says, Well, as I got closer to the end, the pieces were harder to spot where they actually went, and I couldn't slot them in together. Oh, I got close. You bloody didn't, mate. Well, he said what, when he was asked what went wrong, he said, as time went on, the pieces got harder to spot. No, they stayed exactly the same. <laughs> they were identical. Now, we said we wouldn't punch down. We said we wouldn't be mean. But honest to God, plank. He absolutely <laughs> he stacked plank. it. And I know he was just trying to make a defense for himself, but... I'm not saying I could have done the puzzle. No. But I probably would have just gone, cocked it up. Yeah. And I suck at those challenges, so I definitely would have been able to do it. And yeah, to say the pieces got harder to see, maybe he got tunnel vision. Well, you know, Tom Watson did say um, in the in the booth that we all recognize the principle of the challenge, but on a computer screen and with the time, it's very different. So maybe he was just using Tom Watson's warning as his excuse, being like, well, the pieces look very different on the screen. But the screen is all he had to look at in the beginning. I'm trying to help him, man. I'm trying to help Martin here. I don't think anything can help him because, one, he did plank up this challenge. Oh, yeah. Two, it was a pretty <laughs> challenge to begin with. It really was. And that's all for tonight's show. I'm off for an L, Grey. Keep snug and warm till next week. Good night. So that kind of wraps it up for this episode. We don't even get many dick jokes to end it on. And in fact, Dominic just says he's off for an old grey and to keep snug and warm until next week. Yeah, he couldn't be asked for this episode either. Yeah, it's a really flat episode. I was a bit, I was very disappointed. You know, we're nearly at the end of series one. We've had some real like barnstorming episodes. We've had some middling episodes, but this I think is the first real downer episode that we've had. A couple of episodes ago, I said it was my favourite episode because while there was nothing massively spectacular, yeah. it was consistently good. Yes, this episode is consistently bad. Yeah, Strider is a good challenge and the kid nails it but unfortunately because he's that damn good and completes it with that much time left no real sense of peril the celebrity challenge very one-sided yeah with a weird possibly made-up championship <laughs> on the line i don't know were they just trying to i mean she had her own career i believe she was a model i'm not sure i mean i can i, can... I think she i know she's brazilian yeah i can find a lot about her and then we have this last challenge and we have kind of a lackluster review section where they're all highly rated games but even to watch the videos they're not very exciting no and the consultation zone was at least two retreads i mean yeah. assuming all alex kid games are the same oh which they are yeah yeah i feel like i'm this podcast is quickly becoming the we hate alex kids podcast also i'm just going to hand that out there as a podcast idea to anyone listening if you want to start the we hate alex kid podcast go for it go, go for with it. our blessing <laughs> Yeah, it, it's um, yeah, it's a bit of a boring episode. This way, what what score are you thinking of giving it? I was going to go super harsh, but it did give me that flush of nostalgia, that brief tickle and fondle of the memory lobes of Escape from the Planet of Robot Monsters. So it's saved from dipping below the fifty percent mark. Ooh. I'm going to give it a sixty. Okay, I, mean, I was I went lower. I went fifty six. Like not much lower, but like I didn't think there was a lot to say about it. As I say, it was purely the nostalgia of making me go, holy shit, I remember that game. Yeah. I want to play that game again. I don't think any of the other games featured made me go, I want to play those games. Maybe Strider, but I've played Strider a lot, so there isn't much for me to gain by going back and playing it seriously. Whereas I never completed Escape from the Planet of Robot Monsters, and now I'm like, I'm 38, I'm a big boy, 
I can do this and I've got safe states. <laughs> oh, Michael Mateo will be very upset with you. I'm actually going to bump mine up, actually. I'm going to go, I'm going to join you at 60. Only because, like, although the Strider challenge didn't have the drama because he was so good at it, I kind of loved it as almost like it was early day speed running. So from that point of view, I'm going to bump it up because I quite enjoyed that. No, that makes sense. That yeah. absolutely makes sense. Hopefully things will pick up next week as we move towards the finale. Yes. Uh, well, let's go get ourselves a cup of Earl Grey and you and I will keep snug and warm until we see you all next week. Indeed, snug and warm sounds like a very good idea. <laughs> good night. Good night. Now for that information about the Under Consultation Club. You can follow us on Twitter at UnderConsolePod, and you can send your thoughts on each episode to feedback at underconsultation.com. You can also follow your hosts on Twitter at this is Luke Owen and at AshVersus. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a subscribe and a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.